Today on Tax Justice Warriors, I am returning to the tax procedure course that I taught at Washburn University School of Law. This is going to be the beginning of a look at tax litigation, specifically the tax court, an introduction to the process. Thank you for tuning in to Tax Justice Warriors. Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt, the director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. To begin with, I was going to acknowledge that this is the two-year anniversary of the Wayfair decision. I have seen some reports and heard some discussions about the fallout of Wayfair. Since I generally do not work in sales tax or state and local tax areas, I do not have too much input to give on that. But the consensus, I would say, with a fair number of states is that they're saying is that they are deciding just what they will do and what their policy will be, that there is still a bit of a wait-and-see attitude on some states, but certainly there are other reports that will delve into Wayfair more than I'm going to do today. Instead, I'm going to be looking today at tax court. This was course 10 when I was going through the classes during the semester, and I did an introduction to tax litigation by focusing on tax court, I started with giving some background about tax court, turned to what is involved with filing a tax court petition, discussed the calendar call, and then talked about designated orders. Now to start out, tax court is based out of Washington, D.C., where they have various judges that travel through the country and conduct trials for different time periods, I have seen from two days to at least a week that a judge will be in a specific city. Perhaps in some cities they go beyond a week, but I have only seen judges docketed for the cities that I cover that are within those time periods for sure. Now, the judges are presidentially appointed. They have to go through a process of being approved by Congress. There are 16 judges, including the chief judge, 11 senior judges, and four special trial judges currently, and their coverage is for 78 cities. Turning to filing a petition, when you are submitting a petition to the tax court, there is a set of paperwork that needs to be submitted. At this time, the petition must be mailed physically to the tax court. They are discussing procedures for submitting electronic petitions to the tax court. So whether that is implemented later this year, there has been some delay due to the coronavirus, but the tax court judges are working to implement a upgrade to their computer system, and part of that would include submitting electronic petitions to the tax court if you are registered with the tax court. Now, in that set of petition documents, 
there is the petition itself, then a notice of deficiency or notice of determination, a statement of taxpayer identification, that this is a form that lists the taxpayer's social security number, or if it applies an employer identification number or ITIN. Next, a form where you request the place of trial, so which specific city you are designating that you would like to go before a judge to have a trial, and then submitting a filing fee or a fee waiver form, that those five items are what would be mailed into the tax court. Now, with the notice of deficiency or notice of determination, a notice of deficiency is the form that states what the IRS is determining a deficiency amount is. There has been a period of time where the taxpayer did not dispute the liability that has been assessed previously. So either the taxpayer is non-responsive or they are not disputing the deficiency. But at this point, you know, or certainly they do dispute the deficiency, but there has not been success up to this point in discussing with the IRS or dealing with the deficiency. So now there is the 90-day period that the taxpayer can submit paperwork to the tax court in response to the deficiency amount itself. Then there is the notice of determination, and this covers six different categories that could be a type of notice of determination. A collection due process, innocent spouse, a worker classification, the SS-8 form, an interest abatement claim, seriously delinquent tax debt, or a whistleblower action. So with any of these, there could be the notice of determination that is giving the taxpayer rights to petition the tax court if they do not agree with the determination that has been sent from the IRS. Now, one of the decisions to make when filing a petition is do you want to file an S case or a regular case when submitting the petition? Now, the S case for small cases only applies if there is under $50,000 in controversy for the tax year. Now, an S case is simpler, has less formal procedures involved than a regular case, but an S case cannot be appealed to a court of appeals. Now, often with my clients being connected to the low-income taxpayer clinic, for one thing, they are saying they, they do not know the difference, so they will trust in guidance from me or other people working at the clinic. But also, I find that often S cases generally fit for items like notice of deficiencies, where some of it is just a dispute about substantiation for credits or deductions that were made on the tax return. But another consideration would be, is this 
perhaps a new area of law or some kind of case that might be breaking ground, setting precedent? Or is this something that has been contentious, that it may be worth appealing to a court of appeals? Then that is something worth considering. But if you think your case is more routine and likely to settle, then it may be more worth it to look at an S case rather than filing a regular case. Certainly, this is a litigation decision worth thinking through when it comes to filing the petition. Now, I am often using the petition form from the tax court website, and there are some basic questions that you are filling out on the form itself for the taxpayer. They have some small paragraph sections for filling out two basic questions. Why do you disagree with the IRS determination? And state the facts upon which you rely. Now, sometimes I am just putting in a basic statement for each of those categories that we disagree with the IRS determination because the because the taxpayer is eligible to receive the credit or deduction claimed, something basic like that, and then state the facts upon which you rely. I am often saying that we have documents to prove that the taxpayer is eligible for what was claimed on the tax return. It's not necessary to go into too much detail, but you do want to lay out some basics on what the taxpayer disagrees with and what arguments the taxpayer is making. Now, when filing the petition, the a copy of the notice must be included with the petition. So certainly make copies of that notice to include. But when I was in the Villanova tax litigation course, one of the biggest lessons that I learned in that course was redacting the notices that are submitted to the tax court. It is certainly easy for new practitioners and definitely the self-represented petitioners with the tax court to just mail in the documents and not think about redacting anything that is submitted to the tax court. But remember, documents submitted to the tax court are uploaded to the searchable database available through their website. Now, it is certainly a debate that is going on between practitioners, the tax court judges, and the IRS on getting the information to all of the parties, but also trying to prevent any of the too much of the taxpayer's information to be available to the public. So certainly what I do is I go through and look for anything that has the taxpayer's personal identification number. So usually that is a social security number for the taxpayer and if it is a joint return for their spouse. So often there is at least one per page to be redacting, but I have learned to 
look for barcodes or other items that incorporate the taxpayer's social security number with the part of the barcode or certain identifying numbers on the page. Now, I do feel like I am acting a bit like a paranoid conspiracy theory individual because I might redact more than necessary, but the IRS has been using barcodes and also the scannable QR codes. And since I'm not scanning each of those to see what information is on there, it is my assumption that there may be personal identifying information for the taxpayer on that code. And so since I do not want anything to be publicly available for the taxpayer's social security number or other identifying information, I often redact those barcodes as well. And certainly on the income adjustments, there is a listing, for example, of interest that relates to the taxpayer's bank and bank account information. There are certainly account information and different account numbers that are often available on these IRS forms. So it is worthwhile to go through any income statements that led to income adjustments that those often list the company that reported to the IRS, but also listing account numbers on there. So that is certainly something worth redacting as well, in my opinion. Now, another decision to make when it comes to filing the petition is selecting the place of trial for your client. Now, often they are just wanting to find the place of trial that is closest to where they live. And certainly that is a good deciding factor when it comes to selecting the place of trial. But I, for example, cover Wichita, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri. Wichita, Kansas, they only hear S cases. And so if someone has a regular case, then that needs to be sent to another state. But as well, each of the states is part of their circuit court. So certainly, which state you are selecting follows the precedent within that particular circuit court. So if you are litigating an issue that has a circuit split connected to it or might be a new area of law for a particular circuit, if you are dealing with an issue that may have some consideration related to the circuits, that is worth thinking through in deciding which city and location you want to request for your place of trial. Now also with filing a petition, there is the $60 filing fee for the petition or filing a fee waiver form. Now I find the $60 filing fee to be one of the lowest filing fees for any court that I've come across. So often different clients, they are able to pay that $60 filing fee. Certainly if 
you are working with a middle income to high income client, they may not even think twice about paying the filing fee. But in working with a low income tax clinic, you are working with clients who that may be a major issue submitting a $60 filing fee. So they do have a fee waiver form within the forms on the tax court website. When you're filling out the form, they have questions about the taxpayer's income, finances, their other assets, their dependents, and their debts or other circumstances, such as if the taxpayer is in incarcerated or, or has medical issues, just in general, what you are wanting to provide to the tax court related to their their issues. Now, I have generally had good luck when it comes to submitting the fee waiver forms when it comes to my clients. I heard recently about another clinic that they had one denied, but often I think the court is sympathetic to low-income taxpayers when it comes to the fee waiver form. Turning now to the calendar call, that there are several items that happen during a calendar call. To begin with, there are the tax court settlement days. These are conducted in conjunction with the IRS and volunteer attorneys or low-income taxpayer clinics that we are contacting petitioners in advance, seeing if we can discuss the case and find a way to advance the case or come to settlement. Now, often we have been doing the settlement days in advance of the calendar call, so perhaps a couple weeks before trial dates, but in connection with the coronavirus pandemic, there have been different virtual settlement days where the IRS is contacting petitioners who are perhaps not even too advanced with their cases to where they are even set for trial, but the IRS believes that they are good candidates for settlement. And so the various parties are appearing electronically to discuss what would be necessary in furthering the case or coming to settlement. Now, there have been virtual settlement days that have happened in cities like Atlanta and Detroit. I believe Los Angeles was one city that has been scheduled. We have been talking about the end of August for Kansas City. So when I have more details, I will give a report on that. It is always good to be in contact with your local bar association. If you want to volunteer or you want to try and recruit volunteers to meet with unrepresented petitioners at a calendar call, I'm often appearing at the different dockets to see if unrepresented petitioners need guidance. There are three clinics in the Kansas City metro area, so we often will appear at the Kansas City calendar call, and I will appear at the Wichita calendar call. Some of these days can be quite busy, where we are meeting with those unrepresented petitioners before and after 
court is in session to learn about their issues and then bring in IRES counsel or a paralegal to hear their side of the story and get the parties talking to discuss what would be necessary to resolve the case. When the judge goes through the docket for the calendar call, one of the main things they're doing is seeing who is appearing on the various cases. IRS counsel is always appearing, but sometimes the petitioner appears in person, sometimes not. If the petitioner does not appear, then the judge checks with IRS counsel to see what has happened on the case, how much contact has there been between the parties, and the judge has the ability to dismiss the case at that point, but I've also seen judges who take it under advisement, or they might want the IRS to make one final attempt at contacting the petitioner. If the petitioner does appear, then the judge is checking to see the status of the case, have they come to a decision? Are they wanting to go to trial? Or do they have some other motion before the court that needs to be decided? That the judge will often go through the docket, then would hear the pending motions. They often see for the petitioners who are wanting to go to trial that week, are there individuals who just took that day off of work and are only available that day? So if so, then the judge often fast tracks their trial and might take a short recess, but soon schedules the trial that day. And depending on the circumstances, the judge will often schedule the trials for the next couple days to the week, depending on how many days the judge is there for trial sessions in the city. Now, with the IRS there, they are wanting to discuss with the petitioner what kind of stipulations can be submitted to the court. Often, the IRS will have drafted joint stipulations of facts, so these will often be submitted in advance to the judge before a trial so that it would not be necessary to spend time determining what facts are settled on and what documents have already been submitted into evidence. So for example, facts might be that the petitioner submitted a 2016 tax return that the petitioner claimed and earned income tax credit and the child tax credit and claimed business expenses listing those amounts. The IRS sent the taxpayer a notice of deficiency based on that tax return and those documents were submitted to the judge as joint exhibits. Now I tell the petitioners that those are just stating that a particular document was mailed from one party to the other, that they are not necessarily saying that either party agrees with what was 
submitted on the document, just that it was mailed from the party to the other. So that is not going to be in dispute, that the petitioner filed the tax return, the IRS sent the notice, that by signing the stipulation, they're not agreeing to what was submitted on those documents, just that they were submitted. And as well, I have observed some different trials that have occurred before tax court judges, and often it is a matter of the judge wanting to hear the taxpayer's arguments and wanting to go through the different issues that were not settled to hear both sides with regard to the case. Does the taxpayer have sufficient evidence to dispute the IRS deficiency or determination and so on? Now, it is up to the taxpayer to determine what evidence will be provided. And I must admit, in watching several unrepresented petitioners conduct their own trials, that it all depends on how organized the taxpayer is and thinking through their documents, their arguments, how prepared and organized those will be, that certainly that leads into what kind of trial they would have with the IRS and how painful it may be to watch the trial that is happening. Now, I'm going to last fit in about the designated orders. I am one of four low-income taxpayer clinic directors that is writing on the tax court designated orders for the procedurally taxing blog site. I do those with Caleb Smith, Patrick Thomas, and Samantha Galvin. And I was going to mention some of the more unique items that we cover. A bit of the most common are notice of deficiency cases, then I've come to look at the collection due process cases and really see how the tax court views arguments when it comes to collection due process, that it is certainly necessary for the taxpayer to be compliant, to provide information and submit forms to the IRS so that they can keep their cases active when it comes to a tax court trial. Then other interesting cases have been innocent spouse and whistleblower claims that I find it is worth looking at what has been reported on procedurally taxing when it comes to the tax court evaluations in these different processes. But I have found it to be fascinating work in reviewing the designated orders and to report on them for procedurally taxing. So I realize this has been a lengthy discussion of tax court, but I think it is definitely worthy of review. It affects quite a bit of what we do in working tax controversy cases. So I hope this has been a useful listen for you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon 
comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.